stripped off his jacket and helped the colonel clear a hiding place behind the log. He smiled diffidently at Larue. Where do we hide the horses? In a minute. Larue dismissed the question. The colonel seemed to be measuring the hiding place. He drew his sword and poked at the brambles. It was a weapon of exquisite craftsmanship, a straight-bladed, heavy cavalry sword made by Kliegenthal, as were most of the French cavalry blades. But this sword had been made specially by the finest craftsman. It was longer than most, heavier too, for Leroux was a tall, strong man. The blade was beautiful. The hilt and guard were of the same steel, and the handle bound by silver wire, the sword's sole concession to decoration. The weapon proclaimed itself a beautiful, killing blade. Leroux straightened, seemingly content. Anything behind us, Delma? The dragoon captain turned. Leroux smiled. The blade pierced Delma's head. Leroux's enormous strength drove it through bone, through the spinal cord, and into the brain. Delma crumpled. Silence. Leroux knew he would be captured, and that the British would not let him be exchanged for a British colonel captured by the French. Leroux was a wanted man. He worked by fear. He spread horror. All his victims were inscribed. He would leave a patch of skin untouched, and on it he would incise, Leroux Fessit. Leroux made this. If Leroux was captured, he could expect no mercy. Yet the British would not give a fig for Captain Paul Delmar. He changed uniforms with the corpse and pushed the remains into hiding, covered them with leaves and brambles. He drove Delmar's horse away, and then he mounted, placed Delmar's tall brass helmet on his head, and turned north towards the river and the British. Colonel Leroux was captured twenty minutes later. British green jackets, riflemen, rose suddenly from cover and surrounded him. For a moment Leroux thought he had made a terrible mistake. The British were officered by gentlemen, who took honour seriously, but the officer who captured him seemed as hard and ruthless as himself. The officer was tall, tanned, with dark hair hanging unruly beside a scarred face. He ignored Leroux's attempt to be pleasant, ordering the Frenchman to be searched, and Leroux had a moment of alarm when a huge sergeant, even bigger than the officer, found the folded paper between saddle and saddlecloth. Leroux pretended to speak no English, but a rifleman was brought who spoke bad French, and the officer questioned the Frenchman about the paper. It was a list of names, all Spanish, and beside each name was a sum of money. Horse dealers, Leroux shrugged. We buy horses. We have cavalry. The tall rifle officer shrugged and pushed the paper into his pack. He took Leroux's sword from the big sergeant, and the Frenchman could see the sudden lust in the rifle officer's eyes. Curiously from an infantryman, the rifleman also wore a heavy cavalry sword, but it was cheap and crude. The British officer held the Kliegenthal and felt the perfect balance. He wanted it. Ask his name. Paul Delmar, sir, captain in the 5th Dragoons. Larousse saw the dark eyes rest on him. He recognized the temptation the rifleman had to kill him and take his sword. The other men seemed just as pitiless. Larousse spoke again. He wants to give his parole, sir. The rifle officer walked slowly about the prisoner and spoke clearly. So what's Captain Delmas doing on his own? French officers don't travel alone. They're too frightened of the partisans. 
He'd come in front again, and the Frenchman's pale eyes watched the scarred officer. And you're too bloody, Delmas. You should be more scared. You're up to no bloody good. He was behind Larue now. I think I'll bloody kill you. Larue did not blink or move; just waited until the rifle officer was in front of him again. The tall rifle officer stared at the pale eyes, as if they would give him a clue to the riddle of the officer's sudden appearance. Bring him along, sergeant. But watch the bastard. Yes, sir. Sergeant Patrick Harper pushed the Frenchman towards the path and followed Captain Richard Sharp out of the wood. God damn it, Sharp! Hurry, man. Yes, sir. Sharp made no attempt to hurry. He painstakingly read the paper, knowing his slowness irritated Lieutenant Colonel Wyndham. This was his revenge on Wyndham for allowing Captain Delmar to have his parole. He tipped the paper so that the firelight illuminated the black ink. I, Paul Delmas, captain in the Fifth Regiment of Dragoons, taken prisoner by the English forces on 14th of June 1812, undertake upon my honour not to remove myself from captivity without permission, and not pass any knowledge to the French forces or their allies until I've been exchanged. Or otherwise released from this bond, signed Paul Delmas, witnessed by me, Joseph Forrest, major in His Britannic Majesty's South Essex Regiment. Seems to be in order, sir. Order, Blood and Hound Sharp. Who are you to say what's in order? Good God, I say it's in order. I do. Remember me, Sharp, your commanding officer. Sharp grinned. Yes, sir. He handed the parole up. He'd come to like Wyndham in the six months the Colonel had commanded the South Essex, a regard that was also held by the Colonel for his wayward and brilliant captain of the Light Company. Now, though, Wyndham seethed with impatience. His sword sharp! For God's sake, man, hurry! Yes, sir. Sharp turned to one of the houses in the village where the South Essex had bivouacked. The dawn was a grey line in the east. Sergeant. Sir, the bloody frog's sword. Patrick Harper bellowed, "Mr. Macdonald, sir, the French gentleman's sword. If you get a move on, sir." Macdonald, Sharp's new ensign, just sixteen and desperately eager to please his famous captain, hurried from the house with the beautiful scabbarded blade. Sharp took the sword. God, but he wanted it. Monsieur, Delmas' voice was mild, polite. Beyond Delmas, Sharp could see Losso, the captain of the German cavalry and Sharp's best friend, who had driven Delmas into the trap. Losso had held the sword too and shaken his head in mute wonder. Now he watched as Sharp handed the weapon to the Frenchman, a symbol that he had given his parole. Wyndham gave an exaggerated sigh. Oh, now perhaps we can start. The light company marched first behind Losso's cavalry screen. Striking onto the plains before the day's heat rose to blind them with sweat and choke them with dust, Sharp went on foot, unlike most officers, because he had always gone on foot. He had entered the army as a private, wearing the red jacket of the line regiments. Much later, he had made the impossible jump from sergeant to officer, joining the elite rifles with their distinctive green jacket. But Sharp still marched as his men marched, and he carried a rifle. As they carried their rifles or muskets, the South Essex were a red coat battalion. But Sharp, Sergeant Harper, 
and the nucleus of the light company were all riflemen, accidentally attached to the battalion, and they proudly retained their dark green jacket. Light flooded grey on the plain, and Sharp could see the dark shapes of the cavalry outlined on the dawn. The British were marching east, invading French-held Spain, aiming at the great city of Salamanca. Most of the army was far to the south, while the South Essex, with Losso's men and a handful of engineers, had been sent north to destroy a small French fort that guarded a ford across the Tormes. The job had been done, and now the South Essex marched to rejoin Wellington. Captain Losso dropped behind his cavalry to be beside Sharp. He nodded down at the riflemen. I don't trust your Frenchman, Richard. Nor do I. We should have killed the bastard in the wood. That is true, the only thing to do with Frenchmen. Losso, like most Germans in Britain's army, came from a homeland that had been overrun by Napoleon's troops. I wonder what happened to the second man. You lost him. Losso grinned at the insult. Never. He hid himself. I hope the partisans get him. The German drew a finger across his throat, the way the Spanish guerrillas treated their French captives. Then he laughed and trotted back to his men. On the third morning, a great plume of dust in the sky revealed where Wellington's main force covered the roads leading east. At midday, the battalion reached the hills directly across the river from Salamanca. The French had left a garrison in the city that overlooked the long Roman bridge, and while the rest of the army marched further east to the fords, the South Essex were ordered to make sure that none of the French tried to escape across the river. It promised to be a restful afternoon. The garrison planned to stay. The guard on the bridge was a formal gesture. Sharp had been to Salamanca four years before with Sir